resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart words of life, words of hope. Give us strength, help us grow in this world where we roam. Ancient words will guide us home. Ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Holy words of our faith landed down to this age, came to us sacrifice, oh heed the faithful words of Christ. Holy words long preserved for our walk in this world, they resound with God's own heart, oh let the ancient words impart, ancient words ever true, changing me and changing Come with open hearts, oh let the ancient words impart. Ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts, oh let the ancient words impart. We have come with open hearts. Well, let's bow our heads for an opening prayer. We praise you, Lord God. We lift up your name. We lift up the name of your Son. We stand in your presence, drawn here by your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit that empowers us to share your good news. Allows us to share the story of your son and the story of your coming kingdom. His life so freely given. And we rejoice in that free gift. We know that our sins are forgiven. But we also know the need we have to confess that we have fallen far short of your expectations, what you created us to be. We ask that you would empower us and guide us to walk by faith as those who are forgiven. Your word blesses us, and now we offer our worship this hour we are grounded in your faithfulness to us, how great it is. We give you our hearts, our minds. We open the gates and we cry, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We praise the name of Jesus. And may the prayer that he taught us be a blessing in our lives. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to begin this final segment of this series by saying that the opinion that says we cannot really know God's will for our, our lives is way off base. Scripture tells us the opposite. But sadly, many believers never know what God's will is for their lives. And not knowing God's will can leave a believer confused and depressed. You already know most of God's will for your life. Hopefully, the last few weeks have opened your eyes to understand that before you can know God's particular will for your life, first you need to establish godly character using the larger portion of God's will that you already know. We even quantified how much of God's will your life you are, of your, in your life you already know. Every believer already knows one-third of God's will for their life that is related to God's natural laws. You know about God's natural laws like the law of moderation or the law of laziness. There are many laws that we already know. And you also know the second third of God's will for your life, God's moral law. God's moral law was written down on tablets, and then it was preached and expounded upon by Jesus himself. And then the last part, the final third, is the part of God's will that most believers Think of when they seek God's will. This is the particular part of God's will for a believer's life, which is personal and private. And we must remember that knowing the final part, the third part, is contingent upon getting a handle on the first two parts. One principle that preachers love to focus on which seems to me quite obvious, is this. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. This is what Scripture tells us. It's a portion of this section from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong, should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we, are, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. God desires that every believer lives a sanctified life. Sanctified. What does that mean? Paul answered that question by talking about practical purity in this passage. And he gave us four principles. Number one, stay away from sexual sin. The passage doesn't say to avoid sex. It says to stay away from, stay away from sexual sin. This is biblical advice for today, just as it was advice for them in their society 2,000 years ago. 
Our world, our society, in fact, it's, it's, a, it's a worldwide phenomenon. Our world packs immoral sex into most movies and books and calls it entertainment. We should have no part in those things. I'm not talking about holding hands. I'm not saying we can't show affection. The Bible says, the Bible says you are allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though you are allowed to do anything, you must not become a slave to anything. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. When lust controls you, you have crossed the line. It's a simple principle. Second principle, right, that we get from Apostle Paul and Thessalonians. Control your own body to ensure that you are honoring God. Go back to here. For example, a person can dishonor God by overdressing to attract attention. There are many ways that you can dishonor God through your body. It's obvious that gluttony puts one in a position of dishonoring God. Nothing that gratifies the body to the dishonoring of God has a place in the will of God. This is scripture that tells us practical elements of God's will. Principle number three, don't act like the rest of the world. They are guided by their passions. Don't act like the godless pagans. And number four, treat others fairly. Don't take advantage of people. It's all quite simple. And Paul summed it up in verse 7 at the bottom. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. This is straightforward teaching. It's about the parts of God's law that deal with God's natural laws and his moral laws. I get it. And it's been preached from many pulpits. Maybe a little bit too much. But what about God's particular will? To be sure, God has a universal will for me, for every other person. God spoke his will to the entire world through the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus expounded on them in the, in the Beatitudes. If we follow God's universal will, then our lives will become good and honorable examples of God's sanctifying power. But in our lives, in your life, no matter how honorable and pure you are, there is something else that you need to be fulfilled. There should also be a mission about your life. Each believer should have a mission in their life. Now, I, I know the path you choose is your choice, but God wants to choose the path that he wants for you. You have a divinely given right to choose. That's the way our lives work. God is not a puppet master pulling your strings. Most believers choose to follow God's natural laws, God's moral laws, but they still carve out their own careers. 
So I classify believers into two broad categories. One, category number one, those who have God's will in their character. Category number two, those who have God's will in their character and in their career. If you are in the first category, then you are alive, following God's instructions. If you are in the second category, then you are alive, following God's instructions. And you have a mission. You know God's particular will for your life. Those who are in the first category are simply living and developing character. But they are not fulfilling God's particular will for their lives. They miss out on the private part. They follow the universal part, but they never obtain the joy of knowing God's counsel in response to their question, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? That's something that's personal, private. They never get to know God's particular path laid out for them by God's Holy Spirit. Life for those in the first category is somewhat bare. Their lives step through their careers, their circumstances. They bounce from times of elation to times of sadness. The events of life become unrelated. Life moves forward like a perpetual game of chance. No one brings God into their career until they first bring God into their character. I believe strongly that most believers who never consider bringing God into their careers have done a poor job of bringing God into their lives. God's natural laws and his moral laws should be written into our hearts and into our minds first. And then we open up ourselves to God's particular will for our careers. I know up to this point, I still haven't answered the question, how do I know God's particular will for my life? What is God's will for my next step? Every day we are confronted with new situations wherein we may need to consult God for his particular will. Is it possible to know what God's particular will for your life is? To answer that question, I first want to mention some tools that you've all heard of. The tools are techniques. Tools that I want to mention just because they do have some value. The first tool is your ability to reason. You have a good mind. You can often see what lies ahead, up the road, Sometimes the road is dim, however. When that happens, you may need to work your way around some obstacles 
using the light of reasoning. Sometimes with reasoning, the clear beam from God's will shines through. Another tool is your experience. As we age, we usually get to walk along paths that are similar to some of the paths we've walked down before. The first time you walked down a particular path, God may have put up candles along the roadside to help you find your way. Those candles don't go out. So the next time you walk down a similar path, God trusts you to make the right decision. Experience is a practical tool. Then there is circumstance. And this is one of Laura's favorites. (laughs) She's saying, what? God closes doors around us until the alternatives are reduced to the obvious solution. Laura has told me many times that I'm not supposed to put round pegs into square holes. When the doors are shutting all around you, you should be paying attention, looking at the circumstances of, the, of God's will for what you should, where you should be going. And another tool I would be remiss if I failed to mention is a tool for doing God's will that makes me think about some of the saints in my life. One man in particular I think about is Dr. Ernest B. He gave me excellent advice many times. Advice from godly believers like Ernest is a valuable tool that can enable, that can enable us to see what we may not see by ourselves. These are good tools. We should use them. But there's one more tool that makes all the other tools seem minor by comparison. This next tool can penetrate where reason cannot go, where experience has not not been, where circumstance has failed. The next tool is one of the simple truths in the Bible. This tool was expressed in the Old Testament and it was expressed in the New Testament by Jesus himself. He expressed it clearly. He clearly told us that God's particular will is found in the tool of obedience. See, Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem to attend the Feast of Tabernacles. He was teaching at the temple. The religious Jews were astonished that Jesus was so articulate, was so learned. They exclaimed, how is this possible since he's not educated? And then Jesus gave his response to their astonishment in John chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. Jesus said, my teaching is not mine but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do God's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. 
Notice that Jesus didn't say, if anyone does God's will. He said, if anyone is willing to do God's will, he will then know God's teaching. Being willing comes first. Then the knowing can follow. And then after that, after the knowing, the doing may follow once God's will to proceed has been made clear. The whole stress of this passage turns on the word willing. Jesus gave us his answer to the question of how we are to know the particular will of God. Let me say it again, but this time in a few simple words, if you are willing to do God's will, you will know it. You'll figure it out. So how do we apply this principle in a practical situation? That question takes me back to my corporate days. Decisions were always made after doing a lot of analysis. Barrier and aid charts were put up. Solutions would be compared. Cost-benefits ratios examined. <laughs> goals would be eliminated. New goals would be established. So the new solutions were being developed based upon data. It's like using all the tools that I already mentioned earlier, reasoning, experience, circumstances, advice. These tools are all available to aid in making the right decision. But the spiritual person will not necessarily approach a decision solely based on the outlook of available data. A spiritual person will include the in-look, not just the outlook, the in-look. The spiritual person will want to bend their human will until it breaks under the will of God. Okay, have you ever read, or have you ever heard the book, if you haven't read it, entitled In His Steps by Charles Sheldon? You all use words that were made famous by this author in 1896 when he wrote this, uh, this book entitled In His Steps. It was first published in 1896, and according to Wikipedia, it has sold more than 30 million copies. It's a fictional, it's a fictional novel that explores this very question of doing God's will, and the answer is summarized into four little words. What would Jesus do? And you thought WWJD was a modern acronym. No. What would Jesus do was coined back in 1896 by Charles Sheldon when he, when he published his book, In His Steps. And Jesus told us what he would do. Jesus would do what his Father in heaven would want him to do. We should make it our daily desire to live by the Holy Spirit's power and, number two, to do what Jesus would do. When our hearts are prepared this way, when we surrender our wills to God, 
then we can be sure that God's will will <laughs> come out in our career at every turning point in our lives. That's the way God works. Searching for God's will with this ultimate tool, the tool of obedience, ensures that you will find God's particular will for your life. When perplexing situations come, and they do come, the person who looks to God with a willing mind, who desires to do what Jesus would do, finds themselves gazing upon a spot in the distance, the one spot that other people can't see, but it's there where the light of God focuses that person's eyes because he's willing to do what Jesus would do, have him do, or her. And you can't ask me to explain how it works. I can't explain how the will of God is brought into the mind of believers who desire to do God's will. It's supernatural. Sometimes it takes a little patience before we are comfortable with the decision we make. But if you determine to make your decisions based upon being willing to do God's will, then you will know whether your decision is the decision that Jesus would make or if it comes from yourself. Remember what has already been said during the last few weeks. I reiterated it just a moment ago. To be willing to do God's will requires that you first choose to follow the first two parts of God's will for your life, his natural laws and his moral laws. When you consciously choose to follow those parts of God's will, then you can move forward to do God's particular will for your life. This is where God wants you to be. It is a wonderful thing to have an obedient heart. Believers with hearts willing to do God's will can make a difference in this world because they do things even as is done in heaven. God wants to be in the careers of his people. God doesn't want our lives to drift around with every changing situation, useless to him and to the world. We need to be willing to know God's will in our hearts, in our minds, so that we can do God's will in our lives. What would Jesus do? When you are willing to know God's will, then you will be confident in your decisions and in your career because God's Holy Spirit will be shining a light before your path. And this Holy Spirit will take you to see that light and then you will do what Jesus would do. Do you ever wonder what Jesus looked like? In my mind's eye, 
Jesus was a rugged man, tough. He was a working man. He was a carpenter. I don't, I don't know if he was a carpenter as the kind of carpenter that we think of. We know he, he worked with his hands. But the truth is, we simply don't know what Jesus looked like. In his day, when he walked the earth, it was not possible to accurately capture someone's image. We simply don't know what Jesus looked like. But scripture tells us that when the right time came, God sent his son. It makes sense then that God wants us to worship the person of Jesus, not the image of Jesus. See, we have a word picture. We have a portrait of Jesus through words. God wants us to prioritize a relationship with his son. He does not want us to value an image, a picture. And so we have God's word that gives us an accurate word portrait of Jesus. The prophet Isaiah started or startled us with his descriptions. One in particular I like. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. From the book of Isaiah chapter 53. The Gospels provide us an amazing word picture of our Savior's commitment to give his own life. And what for? To give his life for the forgiveness of our sins. We read that Jesus had his eyes resolutely fixed on the cross to fulfill his Father's will, his Father's plan of salvation for all people, even though his path led him to the cross, which included a lot of, a lot of pain and suffering. We read that Jesus was identified with the kiss from a betrayer. We read that Jesus was beaten, spat upon for sport by depraved, irreverent men. We read that Jesus was, was dripping with blood as a crown of thorns was pushed down into his scalp. We read that Jesus spoke compassion, forgiveness. He spoke with anguish. And he even spoke with triumph as he died on the cross. We read that he was revealed to hundreds of people after his resurrection. And we read that he was glorified as he ascended to heaven. Powerful word portrait we have of our Savior. As we gather around 
this communion table today, it is wonderful to know that scripture has given us a guide enabling us to clearly see who Jesus was. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful example Jesus gave to us is he redefined the meaning of the Passover meal for us. What a beautiful image. He directed us to think what happened to him, how his body was broken. And we followed the will of his father. The perfect example for us. And his body was broken, trampled upon, beaten, bloodied. That's the way it was in those days. Yet Jesus was willing. He willingly moved forward to enable us to have a new way to be in a relationship with you, Lord God. Jesus, our brother, our friend, our redeemer. We thank you, Lord God, that he was so willing to move forward. We pray in his name, in the name of our Messiah, Jesus. Amen. Jesus then took the bread. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We continue reading in the book of Mark, verses 23 through 25. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. They all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. This is life-giving food and drink emanating from the creator God himself. Scripture referred to as Elohim in Hebrew. We eat the bread representing the body of Jesus. We drink the wine representing the blood of Jesus poured out, spilled out. This is the meal of remembrance instituted by our Lord, our Master, our Redeemer, Jesus himself. It's a covenant meal. It was established, that covenant back there, that evening in the upper room, and it, that covenant has remained intact since that first evening as Jesus redefined the purpose of that Passover meal. This covenant meal is here for our healing. It's here for our spiritual sustenance. 
And when we partake of this meal, we are enjoying a special experience with Jesus himself through the very power, through God's very own power. Jesus then took the cup, which is a symbol of the new covenant in his blood. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how true it is that blood means business. Jesus was all about completing the business that he was sent here to make happen. And he moved forward willingly. It's hard for us to understand how that could have happened. Not to understand how the universe unfolded that day as the time was right. As Jesus walked that final path and was hanging on that cross, spilling out his blood. The purpose for his arrival, his incarnation, was being fulfilled. We are ever so thankful, Lord God, for that willing heart, the willing heart of our Savior, our Messiah, our Redeemer, the Savior of the world, for whosoever will come to him. Thank you, Lord God for such a willing son. We pray in his name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus then said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Hallelujah moment. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. God sent His
I'll fight my soul.